Uh, welcome, everybody. So good to see you. Welcome from me, too. Uh, really great to be here. As always, part of the Trinity family, welcome to... Um, to newcomers, welcome to visitors, welcome to those who have come back to join us for a while. We've got some Kenyan travellers back with us, I can't resist just saying welcome back to Ferg and Tam Llewellyn who, who have come back home. We, we, we seconded you to Kenya for a while and you are going back there at some point, but it's lovely to see you back home. And any others who are joining us from any other part of the world, um, really good that you're here, thank you. I hope you've had a good half term, as Gareth said. And, um, if February is your least favorite month, you're over halfway through. That's the encouraging thing. By the way, super impressive parenting, don't you think? That um, our kids would recognize the recycling symbol almost as quickly as they recognize the McDonald's symbol. I, I think, pat on the back for all you parents of, of youngsters in the church family. I think that's just brilliant. And that communion is toast. I think that's great. I'm going to ask, uh, by way of beginning, a rather a blunt question. You might feel this is a bit unfair for this time in the morning, but I wonder if I could ask you to think, just for a moment, of one significant need that you have right now, one significant need that you carry right now, and maybe one significant want that you have right now. I think, oh, Tim, don't get my brain working so quickly. I'm here just to absorb, not think. Um, can you do that? Think of a need and a, and a want that you might have right now. I'm not going to ask you to share it with a neighbor because then you might feel pressure to modify your answer and say something that sounds far more acceptable and Christian. <laughs> but a need or a want, is it a breakthrough? Is it something to do with healing? Is it, um, I don't know, you, you need to find a new place to live? Is it something about your job? Is it a breakthrough with the kids? Do you need a new boss? Um, do you need a new football team manager for any team that you might support at the moment? Uh, you know, whatever. So it's the final message. I'll come back to that in a minute. It's the final message in this series that we've been doing, Do You Know Him? Uh, we, we can be glib about that, can't we? We know lots of things about God. The challenge of this series has been to, to push into do we really know him and what aspects of God might, might we be missing? And, and we don't want to miss different aspects of God. So we've been putting some of them under the microscope and we're going to do that today. Uh, for the last time, drawing actually some of the themes of the previous weeks under the title, God is our provider. God is our provider. The Lord is our provider. By the way, advance notice next week, we're getting a new series on faith. And this message, I think, links the two um, quite well. Jehovah Jireh, God, our provider. Challenging message, I think, this morning. Um, so be prepared for that, but not because God wants to uh, put, a, put a heavy burden on us, but because he always wants to encourage us. There is always, always good news when God speaks to us, and we need to hear it in that light. So I've got another question for you in the light of what I've just asked you to think about. Do you believe today that God has anything to say to you now about the way that you think about your needs and the way that you think about your wants. Because if our thoughts run our lives, which the Bible says they do, do you think God has got anything to say about how you think in the area of your needs and in the area of your wants? This guy who was uh, on a cliff, he fell off the cliff on, on, on the way down. He was able to grab onto a tree branch that was jutting out from the face of the rock. And he just managed to cling onto it. And as he's hanging there, reviewing his options, he started yelling, is there anybody up there? Is there anyone up there? He yells. And to his great shock and surprise, uh, he heard the voice of God saying, um, yes, this is God. And he was quite relieved. And he said, well, God, um, can you save me? Of course I can, replied God. And the man was really happy. And he shouted, well, great, what do I do? And God said, let go of the branch. It's a long period of silence. And the man's heard to reply, is there anyone else up there? 
I suspect that there's many of us here who want God to help us, believe that he helps us and wants to help us, but we don't always want to do the things that he directs us to do. And specifically, we can be less than enthusiastic about letting go of some of those things that we think and believe hold us up and sustain us. It's tough to release our grip, to give control in certain areas of our lives to God. We kind of know that he'll provide. We kind of know that there's a lot of promises about that in the Bible. We've kind of experienced some of those to many of us in the room, but there's still this difficulty. We're not quite sure that he's going to necessarily come through for us, and so we hold on, and we wonder that if, if there's somebody else who can help us, or if there's something else that we can do, or if we need to keep control and just figure it out ourselves without necessarily trusting it to God. I want to say from the outset, That knowing and trusting God as provider, the Lord our provider, is not just a way of living a kingdom life in Jesus. It's actually the way of living a kingdom life on earth. Because what it goes to the heart of is that fundamental tussle that we have, that tug of war that we have between who do we trust and who's in control and who do we say is in charge of our life and my decisions and my choices and my future. Where do I put my trust? Is it, is it in God the King? We just heard that thing from Lockridge, God is my King, or, or am I the King? Essentially, that's the fundamental issue for, for us, isn't it, so often. Gareth, I noticed, tweeted this morning something from an author, Peter Scatzera. He said this, the two ways to live in the world are these. The only two ways to live in the world are these. The world of uh, a false self, trusting in our own resources and our own abilities, and a true self, radically trusting in God. That's the choice, and the Lord our provider goes to the heart of that. You can tell why this is a challenging message already, can't you? And we love that the Bible contains so many wonderful stories of provision, of God coming through for people in, in, in places of need. He comes through for, for Daniel in the, in the den. He comes through for Gideon against the Midianites. He provides manna for the people uh, in the desert. He provides strength for David when he's faced with a giant, and on and on and on and on. But one of the most beautiful stories of God's provision, rather extraordinary provision, and indeed the first instance of where he is called the provider, comes in Genesis 22, and that's where we're going to launch from today, Genesis chapter 22. You might want to find it if you've got a Bible, or the words will come on the screen in a minute. It's an extraordinary story, but by way of background, you remember that Abraham, for those not familiar with the story, has been made an extraordinary promise by God that he will be the father of many nations, that through him, through his descendants, all nations on earth will be blessed. And yet Abraham is old, and his wife is even older, and they're past childbearing age. And yet they choose to to believe God for this promise, and eventually, Miraculously, Isaac is born. But a few years later, God has this further test for Abraham in store. Maybe Isaac might be a young teenager by this stage. And we pick up the story here, thanks, Ed. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here am I. Uh, Abraham replied, and God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Skip a few verses. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up, said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, well, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. A bit later, when they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built the altar there, arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand, took the knife to slay his own son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. 
Here I am, he replied. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Don't do anything to him. Now that I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son, Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. And he went over, took the ram, and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh. To this day, it said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, because you've done this, you've not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you've obeyed me. You may or may not be familiar with that story. You might think of it as quite an extreme story. I think in many ways it is. It's quite kind of brutal um, in its impact, but it's loaded with spiritual truth with principles that are important for us. Uh, And I'm just going to draw attention to some that I think God has put his finger on quite quickly, five quick headlines, and then I'm going to apply those principles from this story, the Lord our provider, to a particular area of our life, which I believe is a particular battleground when it comes to trusting God and when it comes to that thing about who's in control and when it comes to choosing to say, yes, God, I trust you as my provider. So here are the headlines first. The first one, let's get this, God wants to bless us. This really, really matters. It matters that we see the goodness of God here. He really wants to bless Abraham in this story. God's heart is for Abraham. This is not some story of a cruel and vindictive God who is playing some mean trick on somebody just to see how he responds. We can read it a little bit like that. I think I've read it like that in the past. It seems really mean. No, God's heart is to bless. Isaac was never gonna die. This isn't about some child-killing God. His heart is always to bless. He can only ever be good, because that's his nature. And we've sung songs about it again this morning. It's one of our most fundamental doubts, to doubt the goodness of God. But he is good all the time. He can't help it. And his heart is for us. And his ways may be very mysterious. Of course they are. He's God. And can't always be explained. Abraham didn't seek an explanation. He just chose to obey because he believed that God's heart was for him. We can't, if, if trusting means we've got to understand everything, well, good luck with that. Then it's no longer trusting, it's understanding. And God doesn't call us to understand. He calls us to exercise faith. And faith specifically here in his goodness. So this is a good and perfect father, uniquely, always. And he longs for us to flourish and he longs here for Abraham to flourish. And we must get that. We have to start there. He wants to bless us. Two, he tests us. That's a key part of the way that he loves us, isn't it? First one, sometime later, God tested Abraham. Is that cruel? Cruel God? No. It's part of the way he loves us. He tests us. Not to trip Abraham up or cause him grief, but to do what? To help him to see and to reveal what was in his heart. That's a very loving thing to do of our Heavenly Father, to show us, to want to show us what's in our heart, to reveal what's in our inner world, so that he might have access to that inner world and continue that work of transformation. Note the phrases here. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. I wonder if he's saying something like this in the background. This could just be my paraphrase or translation. I wonder if he might be saying this. Abraham, we've walked together for quite a lot of years now. We've been journeying together. And you have the son that you longed for and that I promised 
But tell me, uh, Abraham, what's in your heart? Is Isaac, has Isaac perhaps now become more important? Does he hold a higher place in your heart than your relationship with me? Do you still love me with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength? Or has an idol come into your life? We have to use that word advisedly. Something that has taken the place as top of your affections, top of your devotions, top of your attention, the, place where the, the thing to which you give most attention, and displace the God who made you and loved you. Mustn't be afraid to, to name this for what it is, because this is the heart of the issue. Somebody, I read this just yesterday. Uh, again, somebody tweeted this. It was um, very timely. Idolatry isn't an issue. It's the issue that underlies everything else. Again, we might not look like that word idolatry, but we, we can't escape from it. It's the thing that we put top. It's the thing that we put on the throne, isn't it? Somebody else wrote this. The instant that something, however good, whether family or friends or social media or money or house or career or ministry, becomes an end in itself, something that sits on God's throne in the position of glory in our lives rather than being something to lay thankfully before God's throne, it has become our God. What's on the throne? God tests us to reveal what's on the throne of our lives. Three, third headline. Obedience positions us to see God's provision. Obedience to God positions us to receive, in, in particular ways, his provision. Somebody might say, but is all God's provision then conditional on our obeying him? Of course not. Absolutely not. Uh, most of us in this room at the moment are breathing. We are inhaling air. Air is provision from God who loves us, is it not? The God who created everything is God's. He made everything. He provides generously, whether we acknowledge him or not. So much of all that we enjoy comes from the gracious hand of a loving and gracious God. It all belongs to him. He provides. We don't really own anything. Somebody might want to say uh, of, of things that they've accumulated, but I, but, I, but I worked for these things. Don't tell me that God provides. I've provided. It's the work of my hands that have provided uh, for my needs. Somebody might reply, well, who, who provided your hands? Who made you? Who put breath in your lungs? He's a generous provider to all. But what this story shows is that obedience to his voice, a humble, authentic following of Jesus and doing what he says takes us to a place where we have to rely on him, where we need to depend on him, where we can't make something happen or provide for ourselves. Abraham couldn't summon up a ram from nowhere. And in that place, that kind of dependence where, where, where feet can't wander, whatever the, the words from oceans are, where, where I can't stand on the bottom, in that place of dependence, then God's unique provision happens and where his glory uniquely is displayed. Obedience positions us for provision. Fourth, faith grows through test and struggle and discomfort. Let's recognize that too. It's another part of the Father's loving discipline. If you're here last week, Hills gave uh, what I thought was an extraordinary talk on God our Father, but perhaps from the unexpected angle of the Father who disciplines us. One of the things I wrote down was this. It got retweeted quite a lot. God is more committed to our growth than to our comfort. 
God is more committed to your growth, the growth of your heart, the transforming of your heart to be more like his son Jesus than he is to making us comfortable. Praise God, that's loving. In brackets, I ask myself, is that true of me too? Am I more committed to my growth than I am to my comfort? That's just in brackets as another freebie challenge. But God the Father disciplines us, he tests us, he provides opportunities, as he does for Abraham here, to grow, to grow in trust, to grow in faith, to grow in dependence on God, to grow in wonder, to grow in intimacy in relationship with him. Abraham didn't always win that tug of war, by the way. Some of us know the story of the the Ishmael episode where he messed up and he took back control. But here in this story, what happens, that victory on Mount Moriah, Abraham has another extraordinary experience of God coming through for him, of God being his provider. What did that do for Abraham? Well, you bet it put more faith in his heart. You bet it put more courage in him to trust God again when it came to the next thing. And through him, others get blessed. He strengthens hearts. Fifth and finally, it's the gateway for further outpouring of blessing. Passing God's test here releases further blessing. Did you get that at the end there, verse 17? Because you've done this, I will surely bless you, says God. Your descendants will take possession of cities and through your offspring, all nations will be blessed because you've obeyed me. So God wants headlines from the story. There's plenty of others, but here are these. God wants to bless us. His heart is always for us. He tests us because it's good for us. It reveals our heart. Obedience positions us for seeing his provision in particular ways. Faith grows through struggle and passing tests releases further blessing. And so a reminder again, this is all about trust, friends. It's all about the state of our trust and our dependence on God. Story of a little girl in the papers just quite recently. There was, uh, her house was on fire. The house was on fire. She's in an upper bedroom at the window. Her father's outside the house on the ground floor. And he says, jump, I'll catch you. It's a true story. And she's at the window. She's scared, obviously, and she doesn't know what to do. She said, Daddy, I, Daddy, I can hear you, but I can't see you. And he says, it's okay. I think it must, must have been at night time. It's okay. I can see you. You need to jump. And after a moment's hesitation, she chooses to jump out of the window out of this burning um, house. And of course, he, he catches her. Why did she jump? She jumped not because she could see, but because she trusted the voice of a father who said he was going to provide for her, who was going to meet her need, who promised to be there. The Lord is our provider. In fact, the word Jaira actually means it's a combination of seeing and supplying. Providing because he sees what's required and he supplies what's required. It's a very rich concept. The girl was willing to let go. Surrender is always the heart of worship. Worship doesn't start with hands in the air and singing voices. It starts in the heart of somebody who wants to let go and who wants to surrender and trust God. She didn't have to fully understand. The girl didn't need to understand in the house. Abraham didn't need to understand here, but he expressed, they expressed trust in the promise and the voice of a father who was the provider. And what happens in the letting go, in the surrendering, they experience provision, the meeting of their needs. So I need to ask myself this question, and you need to ask yourself this question. And I wonder how often we pray this, by the way, friends. Pray to the Holy Spirit, Lord, will you show me whether there's anything I need to let go of, whether there's anything that I'm holding more tightly than I should, whether there's a need or a want or something in my life that I'm gripping onto, and in the gripping on, actually it's gripping hold of me, and is taking a place in my life that it doesn't merit, 
and it doesn't deserve. And it's even become something that has taken the place and the importance where God should be. Is there something there? Check out regularly. I know we hear these kinds of messages quite frequently. Why? Because we need to. I need to. We need to encourage one another in this, however challenging it might be. And one of the ways of doing that, we pray Holy Spirit reveal, shine your light on these things. One of the things to check out is, well, what am I pursuing? What am I going after? What are those desires? What are those dreams? What is getting my attention? What is getting my devotion? How much of my heart is going towards this thing or this person or, or whatever it is? Or my money for that matter or my time? Is it that house that we're constantly wanting to upgrade or your team or your looks or your kids or what people think of your kids or your own reputation or your dream for success or your quest for a life partner or your ministry. I'll pause there. Sure, work for God can easily tip over into being an idol. It can be a, a very flattering and demanding false God. Whatever it is, if it's become more important, if it's taken the position on the throne that God deserves, then it's become, friends, an idol. And we need to lay it down and confess it. And God will want us to, to put it down. He says, will you trust me? Will you loosen your grip on that thing? Why? Because I'm the Lord, your provider. So those five headlines, I just want to apply them uh, from Genesis 22. It's a story of obedience and faith and provision. I want to apply them uh, to a particular area of battleground in our lives. I could have chosen many. Um, and, and maybe for you it is about uh, relationships. Maybe that's where the real tussle for control is uh, on a regular basis. Or maybe it's uh, an issue relating to family. Or maybe it's around health. Or maybe it's around work or whatever. But you don't need me to tell you that money is a big deal. Our finances are a big deal. And they're a battleground. Even as I say that word, I suspect there's some hearts and minds that, oh, no, not money. Why, is, why do we have that reaction? I'll tell you why, because it's a battleground. <laughs> that is exactly why we have that reaction. I have it too, by the way. Oh, no, not money. Jesus knows all about that too. They reckon, that somebody did a count, they reckon that something like one in seven verses in Matthew, Luke, and Mark, I think it is, uh, relate in some, of Jesus' teaching relate in some way um, to money, even more than he speaks about heaven and hell, which is also quite a lot. So we've got to keep working at this. Why? Because kingdom teaching is what we want, kingdom understanding of money, and not a world's understanding. Our flesh has a particular understanding of these things, uh, and we need spirit understanding. We have to keep working at it. It seems to me that we can veer in two different directions. We can go to, on this issue, we can go towards a legalism, which is all about shoulds and oughts and rules and must-dos and, and, and that kind of thing, and guilt and must-try-harder and whatever. And we can go towards license, on the other hand, which is all about, well, I'm free now. Don't live under law, live under grace. That means I can do what I like. Does it? Um, I won't worry too much about obeying what God says when it doesn't really suit me. Or somebody said this, you can move towards a prosperity mentality or poverty mentality. Prosperity mentality, you know when God really loves you and where you're getting it right spiritually because your butler and your private jet and your gold-plated paperclips will tell you. Or a poverty mentality that says, no, money's an enemy. If you've got a big house, you're probably a very bad person. Uh, and God really wants us to be poor and wear clothes made of um, dried thistles and eat cardboard. Prosperity mentality, poverty mentality. No, friends, let's reject those. Headline one, God is for us. Genesis 22, God is for us. His heart is to bless us. Friends, that includes material blessings. 
stuff that God has made because he loves us to enjoy things and enjoy the world that he has created and to be blessed and to take pleasure in it. Poverty is not commended anywhere in the scriptures. It's not good to be poor. Let's nail that one. Riches are not condemned. But the love of money, which is the insidious bit, sure, that's the root of all kinds of evils says kingdom teaching and we must beware of its huge seductive power if we don't manage money well it'll manage us so we're not to waste it we're not to love it we're not to trust it we're not to imagine that money will ever bring us any kind of deep satisfaction because it's not supposed to ecclesiastes 5 came across this verse whoever loves money will never have enough it never satisfies Rockefeller was asked, one of the richest people in America, he was asked, um, who's rich? He says, somebody who's got a bit more than I have. But money itself is neither good nor bad. We know that in our heart of hearts, in our minds. We've got to settle that issue. Luke 16, 9, Jesus says, I tell you, use your worldly wealth. Use it. It's a tool. It's neutral. It's not good or bad. It's how you use it that counts. Love people. Use money. Nicky Gumbel often tweets this. Love people. Use money. Not the other way around. Because the minute we start using uh, loving money, we start to use people to get more. Wrong way around. Kingdom priority, love people. Use money to love people it, as, as a tool for God's purposes. Not hoarded, not worshipped. What a blessing money can bring. Like manure. Spread it round, it makes things grow. Pile it up, it starts stinking. <laughs> Two. So God wants to bless us. Uh, we don't determine how that blessing comes, by the way. Not prosperity mentality, but let's acknowledge um, God wants to bless us. His heart is for us. Poverty is not a good thing. God tests us, and he uses money to test us. That was the second headline, remember? All kinds of things test us. I think money tests us really effectively. Money has a particular way of testing what's in my heart, I can tell you. And I suspect if you're honest, you do too. Money shows, for example, money shows what I love most. Jesus says this, don't store up treasure on earth. Instead, store up your treasure in heaven, for where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Everyone treasures things, that's a normal human instinct, and it's a good one. What would you, if your house is burning down, what would you go and latch hold of? I think many in the room would probably say photos, because they're full of memories and precious things that we treasure. Rightly, I'd certainly say that, assuming that the children already and my wife had um, escaped, the, <laughs> escaped the burning building, obviously. Jesus says, be careful of what you treasure, because what you treasure can end up shaping you, does end up shaping you. If I treasure power, I will be shaped by pride and control. If I treasure physical appearance, I will be shaped by vanity, and by the way, by despair, as I can no longer hold on to those great good looks, and aging takes over. If I... Um, treasure entertainment and pleasure seeking, I will be shaped by boredom and passivity. If I treasure approval, I'll be shaped by insecurity by other people's opinions. And if I treasure money and stuff, then what will I be shaped by? Greed and dissatisfaction. We don't want to be shaped by those things, friends. Be careful what we treasure. Money shows what I love most. Money shows what I trust most. It's another part of the test. Whether I'm in debt, whether I have a uh, a huge pile of financial resources, if I'm basically looking to money to fix my problems and to keep me comfortable, 
and to help me to be secure and happy and avoid pain in life, then my faith is where? My faith is in my finances, right? And not in the one who provided them. Proverbs 11:28. if you trust in your money, you'll fall. If you trust in God, you'll flourish like a green tree. Simple, profound, challenging. Jesus says you can't trust God and money. He, say, he doesn't say don't put your faith in two masters. He says you can't. It's impossible because you either love and trust one or the other, not both. Money shows me what I trust, shows me what I love. It's another part of the test. It shows me if God can trust me. Interesting. It's another part of the way that money reveals what's in my heart. Can God trust us? He uses money to test that, actually. Uh, Luke 16, verse 11. Whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with much. If you haven't been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? I find this really compelling. It's a story that Jesus told, and, and go to it in Luke 16 if you want to check it out. But Jesus says, how I handle money and stuff and possessions has a bearing on how much God can bless me in my life. There's a link between the way that I use those resources and my spiritual maturity and the extent to which uh, I can be blessed. Really powerful. God's heart is to bless us. He uses money to test us. Third principle, obedience positions us for God's provision. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God. We know that verse. Treasure that verse. It's one of those first things first verses. Seek first the kingdom of God. What's on the throne? Who's on the throne? What's my main priority and purpose in life? Seek first, says Jesus. Anything else is secondary. And all these things, though, but if we seek first, all these other things, the things that we're tempted to seek first, well, they'll take their place. So don't be anxious about money and stuff and clothes and food and um, your children's education. Don't be anxious about those things because if we're anxious, they, be, they, run, they run the risk of being a number one thing. Don't be anxious about anything to do with your future. Why? Because God is your provider. He sees and supplies. Pick your own promise from Scripture. I hope you know one or two of them. Philippians 4.19. This might have been the first verse that my dad taught me when I was a youngster. My God will supply all of your needs. My God will supply all of your needs according to his riches, because he's quite rich. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son Jesus, God who did not spare his own son Jesus, but gave him up for us all, will he not also, along with Jesus, graciously provide what? All things, all things. If God prov provided for me in my Biggest area of need, my need for forgiveness, my need for salvation, my need for rescue, my need for redemption, my need for being picked up from the muck that I was in and being given new hope, new life, new freedom, new destiny. If you met that need, do we really think he can't meet all the other needs? I love that verse. Nothing more encouraging than re reading Romans 8. How many more promises do we need? And they speak into that fear, especially around money, I think, as we're talking about money this morning, where... Our fear is that we won't have enough. Our fear is that because of that, we need to somehow uh, provide. We need somehow to be in control. And especially, we won't have enough. If we start down this obedient path of being generous to mirror a generous God, if we start being people who, who start giving in, a, in a, an extravagant way, a cheerful way, an abundant way, a sacrificial way, a prayerful way, a regular way, our money and our resources. Of course, that's going to look different for, for different people as we pray and respond. In this church family, quite recently, I've become uh, aware of quite a few people in this area making prayerful big decisions. Somebody who um, 
has moved from a bigger property to a smaller one um, in order to be able to release some funds for kingdom purposes. Somebody who's accepted a promotion but put the increased income into a saving giving pot rather than into um, their own pot. There's a number of stories like this. They're challenging, but they're great stories. Is there cost associated with these kinds of things? Obedience leading to God's provision. You bet there is. Of course there is. Generosity, by the way, is not generosity unless it costs us. There's sacrifice attached to this. Remember the story, Genesis 22, but we can't outgive God, ever. In his economy, it releases blessing. And by the way, I wonder if you've ever met anybody who has regretted being generous, who has regretted giving in this way, giving extravagantly. I don't think I ever have. Never, ever regretted. So met anybody who's, who's regretted that or who started regular giving or started tithing. And I've not met anybody who, having done so, has not experienced divine provision. Holding God to that particular promise. Is it easy? No. Is it a struggle? Sure. This is a big battleground. Battle for control. Who's in charge? Who am I going to trust? Genesis 22. Fourth principle, obedience positions us to see God move. And one of the results of surrendering control to God, of trusting him, of obeying his leading as best we discern his voice, is that we'll see that provision and our faith will grow and we'll trust him that bit more. Our own personal story, I haven't shared it for a little while, one of them in this arena, having had a life where we started out uh, married life as earning quite well and, and with no children for two or three years. And as um, soon as uh, Tom arrived, um, Hills, for all the fact that she's worked very hard since, hasn't brought many beans into the house. Uh, and I went from being a businessman to a teacher to a pastor. And economically, that feels like a kind of downward trend. How faithful has God been? extraordinary provision that we could, I could tell many, many stories. But one story, we left the college about 10 years ago, as you know, to, uh, as I was called into, felt God calling me into this kind of work and getting a place uh, on the staff here. And that meant leaving our accommodation at the college, where we'd been uh, housed by the school, and moving to a different house. And the deadline was the 10th of January. We had to be out by the 10th of January for the new term to start. Even the 10th of January was quite late. By the 20-something of December, we still had no house to move to at all. Last Christmas in our favorite old house, we wanted it to be a good Christmas, and um, talk about needing to trust and rely on God, talk about, Lord, we can't make this happen, we, we really need you to come through as the Lord, our provider, and, um, and he did in the most extraordinary of ways. Somebody uh, from our past was part of that provision. God uses people to do the providing very often. They had a sense independently that they were supposed to support us uh, and contribute to the rent that then enabled us to move into a place with a couple of weeks later. And people were saying, of course, gosh, you're, you're very brave, or something like that. I think what they meant was you're completely mad. Um, you've got four kids and nowhere to go in a fortnight's time. Um, but for us, it was just one of those extraordinary moments. And what did that do for us? It, it put courage into us. It, it, gave, it banked another experience of God providing. You'll have your own, I hope and pray, of God coming through when you couldn't make something happen. That's what happens. It's a trust issue. Money is a, tr is a treasure issue. What do we really treasure? And a trust issue. Will I trust Jesus? Store up treasure in heaven. Lord, you've given me these resources. All of us in this room have resources, money and other resources. Help me to invest them in ways, to use them in ways that glorify you, that make a difference forever, that serve kingdom purposes. Most of all, God's mission, our mission to make committed followers of Jesus, to, to, to bless people, to help people, to, to serve people, to educate people, to heal people, 
to rescue people from disaster and injustice, refugees and others, brokenness, to step into that, and to attract people into communities of love and faith called churches, where we're not all sorted out by any means, but these communities where hope grows and faith is nurtured, and we see God at work moving us step by step more towards the image of his son. So we store up treasure in heaven when we do those things. When we give resources, this isn't a talk about giving to this local church family. This is not a talk about tithing, but I have no apology in mentioning that and in challenging us again as one of the leaders in this community. Where are we at with that? Are you having conversations with God about that? Or is it one of those heart-sinking moments or one of those moments where the flesh rises up and a whole bunch of reasons come out as to why we don't want to go down that road? A while ago, I heard a testimony just on this, and I'll, I'll close in a moment, of somebody in this family, a uh, fairly recent follower of Jesus, fairly little by way of disposable income, never heard about the principle of, of regular giving or tithing, giving 10% as a kind of healthy biblical starting point for giving to the local family of which she's a part to see God's kingdom growth here. Uh, but saw in principle that it was a good thing, um, saw it was a God thing, saw that it was potentially, according to God's word, a source of blessing both for her and for those who would be the receivers of uh, that income. And she was fearful. One of the things that she was afraid of is that she'd never be able to have a holiday, wouldn't be able to afford a holiday. But in the end, she realized that money is not really about money. It's about trust. And God was calling her to make radical decisions in her life, including this one. And so she started. She went for it. And she became generous in all kinds of countercultural ways. Guess what? You know what I'm going to say, don't you? <laughs> she discovered God's abundance. She discovered that he's an amazing God. She discovered that he's the Lord, her provider, our provider. Did he let her down? No. Did, her, did, did, he, did she sink? No. Has her faith grown? Yes. Are her resources blessing others? Yes. And she's become a kingdom risk taker, and not just in, in areas of money, but in the way that she prays, in the way that she takes God at his word in the Bible and chooses to, to put it into practice. Does she f fall flat on her face sometimes? Sure. Oh, and by the way, did she stop having holidays? No. God used somebody to help provide her to have the holidays that she thought she wouldn't manage. See, giving is not an obligation. <clears throat> it's not something that God does to raise money. It's something he invites us to do to raise people to grow people. It's not really about money, it's about trust. This is all about trust. The whole message is about trust. And one day, by the way, we give an account to God what we have done with what he's given to us. Not just money, but talents and relationships and time and energy, all of those things. Luke 16, verse two, you must now give an account of your stewardship, report what you've done with all those things that I entrusted to you, whether a lot or a little. So, family, Trinity family, will we allow God to renew us today in trust? Because it's all about that. It's the heart of the matter. It's the heart of that thing we call faith. Will we allow the Holy Spirit of God to remind us that he's for us? That whilst this is challenging, he, his heart is to bless us. Sure, he'll test us. But sure, he'll keep speaking to us and requiring of us an obedience that then draws us into a deeper experience of dependence on him and provision from him that releases his kingdom life more fully in us and in those around us whom we're called to love and to serve. Let's stand together.